The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, March 1st, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Democratic field is getting crowded, crowded with past guests of the gist. You heard Mayor Pete Buttigieg on Monday. And this guy once stopped by once upon a time. Former Governor John Hickenlooper could announce his decision on a presidential run next week. I welcome the Hickenlooper candidacy, but like any candidate, this guy needs a balanced ticket. Now, I'm thinking he could go with a Democrat-Republican fusion ticket. We pair Hickenlooper with the current head of the Department of Agriculture, a famous name in poultry, Mr. Sonny Perdue, and that would be the Hickenlooper chicken cooper ticket, or another much more prominent Republican and much more conservative Republican running mate, a guy who worked for a Republican administration, uh, one that lasted almost two terms, Pat Buchanan, that would be Hickenlooper Nixon Trooper, or even a dead Republican, Hickenlooper Herbert Hoover. I don't know, he might want to go with the former head of the CIA, top spy John Brennan, who these days cannot believe the direction the country has gone in. That would be Hickenlooper stricken snooper. He could run with Danica McKellar, Hickenlooper, Winnie Cooper. Or maybe I need to start a whisper campaign that he's running with a woman who draws power from the dark arts. That's the Hickenlooper Wiccan rumor that could fall on deaf ears. But literally, it's a good idea. You know, any woman who runs is going to be called a witch anyway. So we just acknowledge that we're running with the devil in this case. You know, I do think that that, the uh, Hickenlooper Wiccan rumor, that would be sort of the best of candidacies, but also the worst of candidacies. You don't get the reference? Oh, maybe you need a Hickenlooper Dickens tutor. You know, John Hickenlooper, he's, he's a pretty good orator, but he can't exactly sling the shit. Of course, if he could, there would be a great branding opportunity for the Hickenlooper Pooper Scooper. Oh, who am I kidding? He is not going to win. I hate to be a party pooper, but Hickenlooper lacks the lucre to do anything electorally super. On the show today, I spiel about the strong ties one Tea Party member has with a niece and nephew of color. But first, this Sunday on HBO, the first of a two-part documentary called Leaving Neverland airs. Perhaps you've heard of this. It is the most authoritative work yet about the predations of Michael Jackson. Focuses on two victims of the most successful solo recording artist of all time. Leaving Neverland is four hours of extremely disturbing but extremely well-crafted journalism. Dan Reed, the director of the documentary, joins me next. Wade Robson and James Safechuck were two talented young boys who came to the attention and then under the spell of Michael Jackson. As a 7-year-old and 11-year-old, they were each showered with Michael Jackson's approval, given essentially careers by him as performers, and they were also repeatedly raped by him. One describes his relationship with Jackson as that of man and wife. He was 11 years old at the time. Leaving Neverland is the two-part documentary on HBO detailing the stories of these two men and their relationship with perhaps the most famous man in the world at the time. Dan Reed is the director of that documentary. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Were you writing a wrong or explaining a phenomenon? Um, a little bit of both. I think explaining the phenomenon is really important because people don't understand um, child sexual abuse very well, and I certainly didn't before I began this, um, and therefore don't really understand 
the things that happened in the story because you can only really get why Wade Robson went from, you know, enthusiastically defending Michael Jackson on the witness stand in 2005 to where he is today. Right. Um, so, writing a wrong, the wrong, well, the wrong that was done to these little boys. Um, hopefully we can write it to some extent. Well, Jackson's dead, so he can't be put on trial. What first, what was the spark at first? Like, I can't believe this, or how did this happen? Well, at first there was no this, because I didn't know whether to believe their story or not. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what draws me into any story is um, taking people inside a thing that they think they know. Yes. And revealing the complexity of human behavior, because... You know, I think that's what long-form documentary does. It gives you space to go, yes, this is true, and the opposite is also true, and people are complicated, and they do weird things, and it's not always immediately obvious why they do things. It's not black and white. Mm -hmm. um, and this was this seemed to be like one of those stories. So at the outset, I had no special interest in Jackson. This project came about in a kind of random way, and the timing is quite random. I wish I could say I'd set out to make a big difference in the Me Too movement. And right. All, but I, I but how, so how did it come about randomly? It came about through a casual conversation with a Channel 4 executive in the UK, um, and we were talking about what, what are the big stories out there that are slightly unresolved or that people don't quite know the inside of. And, uh, and so I did some, I commissioned someone to do some research, and they came up with this. Uh, I think it was like a, a forum page that mm -hmm. had a, a reference to these two guys I'd never heard of, Wade Robson and James Safechuck, who seemed to be wanting to tell a story of child sexual abuse about their relationship with Michael Jackson. And I was like, oh, that's weird. You see these names on a piece of paper and there is some information that maybe they want to talk. How do you go about pursuing that? Well, the information was that they they were going public because they were litigating. Now, um, I had no idea if they'd want to talk to me or not, so I contacted their lawyers, and, you know, long story short, I ended up in a meeting with their lawyers in Los Angeles. We talk, and um, they clearly decided that I was, uh, that my track record warranted, you know, having a meeting with Wade and James, and that's what happened, and then, you know, they agreed to be interviewed. Before you even turn the camera on, how many meetings do you have with James and Wade, and what are they like? I have one meeting. Really? Yeah, with Wade and James separately because they're not allowed to have any contact. And they live, you know, many hours apart. James I met for dinner with his wife. He seemed sensitive, vulnerable, sincere. Yeah. And then I went, I flew to Hawaii to meet Wade and we had lunch. And he seemed very poised, thoughtful, asked me some good questions about my intentions. Yeah. And, um, and we decided to go ahead. One meeting. One meeting, Each. yeah. Who'd you, who'd you film first? I filmed Wade first for three days. So in between the days of shooting with Wade, did he change from day to day? No. No, he didn't. Um, he grew more tired. Yeah. <laughs> we all did. What the film's about, what the film's about is two, the, the, the reckoning. You know? mm -hmm. It's two families coming to terms with what happened to their sons. And a big part of understanding that, you know, so why the silence? Why did the sons keep silent for so long? Why did they keep the secret? And, um, you know, the key really is, is to be able to explain why Wade gave false witness on, you know, and perjured himself on the witness stand. And the reason for that, of course, is to do with how survivors of sexual abuse experience that and how they keep a secret and how they form a deep attachment sometimes with uh, the abuser and how that attachment persists then into adult life. Um, what was your strategy going in about how to lay out what happened, when to bring up the most sensitive materials. How, how are you going to do it? I, I said, let, let's go through this chronologically. And that had a big impact on, on Wade as it happened. Because, you know, you start laying out your whole life. 
It's a powerful thing to do. It's very simple. Had he done that? Had he done that in no, therapy or no, to anyone? No, he'd no. never done it before. And then I think we said, when it comes to the sex, we can't draw a veil. Mm-hmm. So we have to go there. We have to talk about the sexual acts that happened. Yes. Uh, because Michael Jackson represented himself as someone who had an innocent interest in children, but was intimate with them and close to them and physically affectionate and all that. And we had to make very clear, if that was the case, that um, that it, this was sex, the kind of thing grown-ups do. Did you always know that that would be in the final cut, yeah. as explicit as it could be? Yeah, because if, if, if we don't go there, if we don't say, look, this is sex, mm-hmm. people, um, then we don't have a film because there's nothing wrong with you know, affectionate physical contact, right? If it's not sex. Or even beyond that, words that allied the actual graphic nature of the act that make it clear that itself wouldn't be sufficient for your purposes to say that we had oral sex Mm. as opposed to really explicitly talking about body parts Mm. and so forth. I think that, you know, testimony, when it's delivered in a very present way, when the person is present in the moment that they're describing is so much more powerful than simply information delivered, right? And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be kind of present in the room when, I mean, awful as it sounds, when this was taking place. The sexual contact is described with great dignity. It's described quite clinically, but you yes. are kind of present as it's, as it, you, you feel present as it's happening. And, and, uh, and I wanted people to be confronted with the horror of what it means for a seven-year-old child to be preyed upon by a pedophile. With that, so that was with Wade. With James, um, in the documentary, so there's very explicit and graphic details of body parts and actions. But then there is an almost unrelenting recounting of all the places where they had sex. And I suppose, well, you tell me, does, is that for the same purpose, to lay it out clearly so you can't look away? That took me by surprise. I mean, my jaw hit the floor. Yeah, we were talking about Neverland, and 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 it is so remote. And I remember driving there and thinking, "Oh, okay." So he really he went beyond the reach of anyone, mm-hmm. and he established his own little domain that he could control. As someone put it, I think I didn't use this in the film, but I think James's mother said it was a pedophile paradise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, so Wade is describing uh, his time at Neverland and the wonders of Neverland, and. And then he begins to describe almost like a journey through each of the attractions and each of the locations in Neverland that Michael created. And on each stop in that journey, there is a bed and there is sex. Mm-hmm. And he car- and, and you know the first three or four, I thought, wow, that that's that's heavy. And then he went on and on and on. And I don't know, I haven't counted them, but there's like a dozen stops in that horrific journey. I'm going to read to you uh, a criticism of the film by one of my colleagues here, Christina Cotarucci, and I think it's fair. I don't know that I necessarily agree with it, but I think it's fair and I'd like your answer. The documentary hobbles its chances to convince skeptics that these men are telling the truth. The misstep does a grave disservice to both men. Leaving Neverland could have helped viewers understand the complexity by asking Robson and Safechuck a few pointed questions about why they've tried multiple times to get money from the Jackson estate. Yeah, I mean, I disagree. The, I think you only feel the absence of what she's describing if you have been 
poisoned, if you're, the well of your mind has been poisoned by the, the rhetoric of the estate. Mm-hmm. So the, the estate's rhetoric and the Jackson family's rhetoric, and this has been the case for the last two decades whenever any sexual um, abuse allegations have popped up, is it's all about the money, mm-hmm. it's all they want the money, and it's their refrain. And of course, in many ways, it is about money, but it's about the Jackson's money and they, their desire to hang on to it and to retain the value of their asset, which is, of course, Jackson catalog and his reputation. Um, think about it for a second. The justice system, the courts, is that not where you go to get justice when you have been wronged? Is that not the proper way to seek redress? Mm-hmm. I mean... If someone stabs you in the street, you don't write a novel about it. Right. These men were raped. Rape is a crime. And, and this is the, the terrifying thing and the, and, and, and the challenge that people face when they want to bring child sexual abuse to light and, and the perpetrator is still alive, is they have to go to court and it's their word against their abuser's word very often. But in this case, we have a massive evidence that, um, you know, Wade and James did have a relationship with Jackson, you know. Oh, yeah. We know that. We have documentary evidence of that, that they did spend many nights in bed with him and no one contests that. So, mm, you know, do we believe their allegations about what happened in that bed at night? Well, I do. Is the Michael Jackson estate truly powerful? You get different impressions. He has this large catalog that obviously gives him a lot of money and yet Neverland's been on the market and declining in value. Are they really a behemoth to worry about? Well, they've got some tasty lawyers, haven't they? They do. Yeah. Ones whose names I know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the estate is both powerful in this and powerless. Uh, they're powerful because they can make a lot of noise and they can launch a lot of lawsuits and they can do all that. But they're powerless to present any real evidence against what Wade and James are saying. So, you know, that the, they're trying to present um, Wade as a liar and they're saying he's a perjurer, which is kind of bizarre because either he's a perjurer or he was telling the truth. Of right. the trial, right? Right. You can't have it both ways. Um, if he's a perjurer, he's a perjurer their case then in this, Jackson in this was matter. a rapist. Yeah. 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 So, so um, you know, and and right, the, right. It's like the old line: "Were you lying then or lying yeah. now?" His answer: "I was lying then." <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, so um, I think there's a much bigger point in this, which is that in order to understand why Wade Robson lied on the witness stand, you have to learn something about child sexual abuse. And that, for me, is the big thing about this and that, about this film, and that's our big opportunity. And the reason really why I think this film is precious to me and, and is, it was an important film to make. I never set out to topple Michael Jackson or to detract from his glory as an amazing entertainer, and I, that's of no interest to me at all. I don't care whether people continue listening to his music or not. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. I really don't care. Right. People make their own minds up. I have no guidance at all for anyone. The only guidance I have is please listen to Wade and James's stories. And please, when you watch this four-hour film, please understand or please open your mind to this picture of how child sexual abuse unfolds in later life. It's not a simple case of a, ba- a, man, did the mummy a, ba- a man did a bad thing to me and running to mummy or to the police. Kids don't do that when they've been molested. They don't do that. It just doesn't happen. Because the person doing the molesting is often a friend or a trusted uncle or a and in this whatever. And in this case, someone who worked hard to entangle himself in the lives of these families mm. and make them dependent mm. on him. And, and there are analogies to many molestation situations in terms of that. I want to ask about the mothers, specifically the mothers. As far as Wade's mother, Joy, goes... Is there an element of willful blindness? The, the, his father said 
I can't believe you're staying in California and he leaves the family at that point uh, distraught. There are so many signs, all the signs of sleeping in the bed with a grown man and to the point where Shuck's mother exults when Michael Jackson dies, whereas Robson grieves. For well, a week. the difference at that point, there's a kind of, they're in different situations, the two mums in 2009. Yeah. So Stephanie Safechuck has already learned that to quote right. James, Michael wasn't a good man. Yeah. So she, she knows mm-hmm. by that time, and that's why she's jubilant when he dies. Um, and Joy is still in the dark. And she doesn't know. She's grief-stricken when, you know. And, and Wade was grief-stricken. Let's, you know, there's, make no mistake. No one is saying that Wade wasn't upset. No one was saying that he didn't want to go to the memorial service. No right. one is saying that right. he didn't. He lost, you know, his great friend, his mentor, the man who had a sexual relationship with him for seven years. You know, that creates a deep attachment. So, um, yeah, you know, Wade was devastated. So, yeah, so Stephanie reacts differently because she already knows something. Joy Robson was ambitious for her son. And rightly so. He's a bit of a genius, you know, mm-hmm. dancing and choreography. And he's an incredible dancer. I've watched him quite a bit. And, and he was choreographing Britney Spears' world tour at the age of 14 and NSYNC at the age of 16. And this guy was a prodigy, you know. So um, Joy gambled on her son's career and she, you know, it paid off. But there was a terrible price to pay. And that's not a price that she was aware of. The opportunity and the dazzle of Michael may have... Well, it did make her blind, didn't it? Yeah. The reaction has been gratifying to you? Do you think it's been received in the way that you would have liked it to be received? It's been incredible. It's been astonishing. I We never expected it to be received this well. Well, I mean, he's the biggest guy in the world, and you're yeah. saying some truths that were long suspected, and it seems fairly buttoned down to me. So mm. I would think it would have made a bit of a splash. Yeah. I mean, Sundance was amazing because it premiered at Sundance in January. And, you know, standing ovations and, and on both screenings, there were only two screenings. And that, that, that was life-changing for Wade and James because they were used to people throwing shit at them. And suddenly it was like, wow, mm. we're believed. And this is, it was incredible validation. And I think they've gone from kind of strength to strength since then. I hope that some good will come out of the film in the, in the, in the shape of, you know, people feeling able to break their silence if they're victims of child sexual abuse and, you know, I think this is a document and a, va- a really good, forget Michael Jackson, this is a really great, I think, detailed and thorough account of the grooming of two families by a sexual predator. Right? And that's where it transcends just the mm. very, very bizarre, uh, sui generis story and person of Michael Jackson. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so I keep coming back to this. This was never for me about, you know, taking aim at Michael Jackson or his legacy or anything like that. And that's why I don't care whether people listen to his music or not. This was about... And this is what I do. I tell stories yeah. about things that are complicated yeah. and things that people think they know about, like child sexual abuse, but they don't really know about at all. And there's a valuable story to be told and one that touches a lot of people. Dan Reed is the director of Leaving Neverland on HBO here in the U.S., Channel 4 in the U.K. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. And now the spiel. Yet again, Donald Trump got out of Vietnam. This time it was because he didn't like North Korea's negotiating stance, which shockingly enough did not include Kim Jong-un totally capitulating. But on the way out of town, or on the way out of hemisphere, Mr. Trump was asked about the testimony of Michael Cohen, which occurred concurrently with the aborted peace summit, and Trump had this to say. He lied a lot, but it was very interesting because... 
He didn't lie about one thing. He said, I know what Mr. Trump is. He is a racist. Okay, good to get that on the record. Well, technically, that was part of a larger sentence. I know what Mr. Trump is. He is a racist. He is a con man. And he is a cheat. Wow. So now it's on us to figure out which one of those is true. Because a strong case was made, it's all of them. Now, in actuality, what Trump was saying is that the one true thing was that there's no collusion, though Cohen had an odd way of furthering the no collusion narrative by giving testimony and leads that Trump was still in negotiation with the Russians after getting the Republican nomination and months after Trump denied that he was in discussions with the Russians. But let's just take the racist part. That's... The one of those three things, the con man, the racist, and the cheat, that's the one that's not actually illegal. In fact, it's the one that's not just not disallowed by the Constitution, but without it, there would be no Constitution. Mark Meadows, Republican, Tea Party stalwart, and vociferous Trump defender, tried to bat away charges that Donald Trump was racist by a quite advanced tactic. He brought a black woman with him. Her name is Lynn Patton. She now works at HUD, and she worked at the Trump Organization. You made some very um, demeaning comments about the the president that Ms. Patton doesn't agree with. In fact, it has to do with your claim of racism. She says that as a daughter of a man born in Birmingham, Alabama, that there is no way that she would work for for an individual who was racist. How do you reconcile the two of those, Mr. As neither should I, as the son of a Holocaust survivor. That answer by Cohen was not exactly germane, but it was a zinger and a keen mind like Mark Meadows could not overcome it. The visual at the time, by the way, was Lynn Patton literally standing behind Mark Meadows as he began his questioning. And then someone mentioned uh, to her, maybe you should sit down. So she sat down as he said this part. But Mr. Cohen, I guess what I'm saying is, is I've talked to, to the president over 300 times. I've not heard one time a racist comment out of out of his mouth in private. And you should know you're the guy who brought a black woman to a hearing to show that Donald Trump is not racist because he does have this one black woman employee. Later in the hearing, Representative Rashid Tlaib of Michigan made a quite obvious but quite valid point. The fact that someone would actually use a prop, a black woman in this chamber, in this committee, is alone racist in itself. And then all hell broke loose. Mark Meadows asked, are you calling me a racist? Mr. Chairman, I ask that her words, when she's referring to an individual member of this body, be taken down and stricken from the record. I'm sure she didn't intend to do this. But if anyone knows my record as it relates, it should be you, Mr. Chairman. So Elijah Cummings, black man, who's the chairman of the committee, is caught between the complaints of Rashida Tlaib, Muslim woman of color, as she complains about Mark Meadows, white man, pointing to Lynn Patton, black woman, to absolve Donald Trump, racist, of racism. Cummings has a conundrum. Does he pursue what he must know to be a fine, valid point from the freshman representative, or does he try to keep peace so that attention does not stray from the issue at hand, which is Donald Trump's misdeeds and potential crimes? Cummings uses his authority to broker peace. Tlaib reads back her remarks 
and offers this personal clarification. And it is insensitive that someone would even say racist, say say it is racist in itself, and to use a black woman as a prop to, mo- to prove it otherwise. And I can submit this for the record. If a colleague is thinking that that's what I'm saying, I'm just saying that's what I believe to have happened. And if as a person of color in this committee, that's how I felt at that moment, and I wanted to express that. But I am not calling the gentleman, um, Mr. Meadows, a racist for doing so. I'm saying that in itself, it is a racist act. And that last part right there allows for face to be saved. Tlaib could have pressed the point. Cummings could have let her. But it was seen by both as more important to embrace the fiction that no one was calling Mr. Meadows a racist. And that what she was doing was saying that someone who engaged in the exact action that Mr. Meadows engaged in committed a racist act. So technically that wasn't her calling him a racist. Now, Ms. Tlaib... Is it? I want to make sure I understand. You did not. You were not intending to call Mr. Meadows a racist. Is that right? No, Mr. Chairman. I do not, do not call Mr. Meadows a racist. No, I am trying. Wait a minute, hold on. As a person- all right. Question is: Is this all good enough for Mark Meadows? Let's hear. My nieces and nephews <coughs> are people of color. And with that defense, I wasn't using her as a prop, though she literally stood behind me and said nothing. Meadows felt heard and peace was brokered. We all know what happened. We all saw what happened. But let me just offer this analysis that this exercise in decorum, political niceties, or allowing a lie to stand so as not to take our eyes off the greater goal of pursuing the high crimes at stake, this was all countenanced and it should have been. It doesn't make us cheer or feel good about ourselves. It's not a heroic act. We feel no vindication. We feel a little dirty that we let it stand. It's unsatisfying, but because of this, because of this compromise of conscience, the oversight committee did not come apart at the seams. And some accountability, at least on the big matters, can be pursued. And that's it for this week's show. Uh, hello, I'm Devin Kerfeld. I'm the regional chairman of the National Association of Nephews of Color. I was told I'd be given an opportunity to make a statement. Nope, nope, no time, Devin. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. Uh, we nephews of color, speaking also for our sister organization, the nieces of color, we decry the casual invocation. Shut up, Devin. We've got to get to TJ Raphael, senior producer of Just Podcasts. We have for too long been taken for granted and used as a convenient example or a scapegoat, and this all must stop. So must this, Devin, because now comes the part when I say, the gist, stand with us to call out uncles of no color, nieces and nephews of color, Nananak, united, can never be divided. Say it with me, Mike. Nananak, united, can never be divided. Umperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.